phrase is a faith that makes some noise. We'll be in 1 Thessalonians for uh, at least five weeks, maybe six weeks. Um, so why don't you open your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Thessalonians. And we'll begin with prayer. Father, thank you so much for gathering us here this morning. Thank you for what we've already learned of your grace and how we've been able to celebrate it. Thank you for reminding us of your character and your ways. Thank you as we've sung songs uh, of just your, um, of your redemption, of your mercy, of, your, of the salvation we have in you. Lord, these are just kind reminders that we need, we desperately need. Father, thank you that we get to do this with others, Lord, in community, that we're called, Lord, to this. So as we lean into your word this morning, as we open your word, as we look at your word today, Lord, I pray it would come alive, that it would not only be clear to us what's being said here, but it would be real to us, that you drive it home right to our heart. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, how do we face suffering without losing hope? How do we live with endurance and deep conviction? How do we live in a way that really pleases God? We're going to learn how by looking at the letter of 1 Thessalonians. The Thessalonians were a young church facing severe suffering, surrounded by idolatry, yet the Apostle Paul says this to them, the Lord's message rang out from you. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. And we know that this church wasn't perfect. But they had what we should all long for, what I, I've been praying that we, uh, local church St. Pete, would have a faith that makes some noise. In 1 Thessalonians, it shows us how the truth of Jesus, it reaches into every area of life, from work, play, and family, to money, sex, and death. And we first read about the church of Thessalonica in Acts 17. So though I had you open to 1 Thessalonians, turn with me uh, now to Acts 17. Paul preaches Christ for three weeks, and a young church is born. We're going to learn about the start of the Thessalonian church in Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. When they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures explaining and proving that the Christ, the Messiah, had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said. Now some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. But the Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace. They formed a mob and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other brothers before the city officials, shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And Jason welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil, Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. As soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. We'll stop there. Paul goes to Thessalonica. As was his custom, he goes into the synagogue and he explains how Jesus is the Messiah, the long-awaited for king, the one the prophet spoke of. 
And he's defending this for three weeks in a row when we had Jews that are coming to faith and, 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 and God-fearing Greeks or those who were leaning in to Judaism who were, who were worshiping at the synagogue but were non-Jews. They were coming to faith and we had prominent women coming to faith who um, had a lot of money and, and they had a place of prominence in the city. So the synagogue leaders, they're upset. They're losing members. City officials, they're upset. People are placing faith in what seemed like just another cult. They worshipped an alternate king. And so bad characters form a mob. They start a riot. Jason, who is really uh, a big part of this church in Thessalonica, Jason and other brothers are dragged before the city officials, and the church sends Paul and Silas away. What a wild start. That's crazy. A lot of drama surrounding this, this church. Paul wasn't there very long. But people were leaning in. People were believing in Christ. Uh, a, a community of believers had formed, made up of uh, just a wide variety of people. It was a wild start. And months later, out of love and concern, Paul sends Timothy back to Thessalonica to check on their faith. And Timothy comes back to Paul and delivers good news of their continued faith in Jesus. And so out of joy for this young church, Paul writes the letter of 1 Thessalonians. That's a little bit of the history. So now, turn with me to 1 Thessalonians. You know one of the people by name that he's writing to. He's writing to Jason and the others who are gathered there in Thessalonica. And it says this in chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you mentioning you in our prayers. We continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord in spite of severe suffering. You welcomed the message uh, with joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message, it rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it. For they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Paul spends time encouraging them in their faith right, right away. He says, we're continually remembering before our God your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, your endurance inspired by hope. Their work this young church, their work was rooted in faith. Faith came first. Faith came first and then work grew out of it. They had labor that was prompted by love. Love came first and then labor grew out of it. They had endurance that was rooted in hope. Hope came first and then endurance grew out of it. What motivates your work? What motivates, what prompts your labor? What inspires endurance for you? You know, oftentimes we want to work to show we have faith. 
We want to labor to receive love. We want to endure to find hope. But Paul is essentially saying this. You came to God empty-handed. You received all he has. You rested in who he really is. And out of that grew what? Grew work, grew labor, and grew hope. Is that true for you? You Oftentimes we want to bear fruit that shows we're followers of Jesus but our, the fruit of, a, of our tree, the fruit of our lives, has to be rooted in what we know is true of Christ and that we're resting in him, letting the roots run deep into who he is and his great love for us. And out of that will spring the fruit, will bear the fruit of what it means to follow him. We can't get it the other way around. And the Thessalonians, they got it right. Their faith, their labor, their endurance, it was rooted in what was true in, of Jesus. It was growing out of, out of, out of sincere faith and love in, for him. And, and there are some experiences that are so remarkable that you just have to talk to someone about them, right? In life, there are some, some experiences that we, we go through that are just so remarkable, whether it's an engagement, whether it's the birth of a, a child, whether it's a, an amazing concert we go to. We have to share that experience with someone because it's, it makes an impression in our life. The Thessalonians not only made an impression on Paul, they were making an impression throughout the region. And in verse five, Paul remembers, he's celebrating the time when the gospel came to them. He says, it didn't just come to you with, just simply with words, but it came with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. There, there must have been a real movement of the Holy Spirit when he proclaimed the gospel for those three Sundays or the Saturdays, uh, the Sabbath days in the synagogue. The word Paul uses in verse 8 comes from a word that means echo or noise. It can mean sound or ring, peal or boom, like a loud trumpet blast or like the roaring of the sea. He says in verse 8, the Lord's message, it rang out. There was a boom here. It rang out from you. So much so, people reported how they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. That was the report. That was the Thessalonians' reputation. It was completely countercultural, as we'll see in a moment. It was even strange. But what an impression they made. We're going to look at three things today. We're going to see how they turned to God from idols, and how they turned to serve the living and true God, and how they were waiting for a son from heaven. We want those three, three things to mark us as a church as well. So let's look. First, they turned to God from idols. This was what others were reporting of this young church. This is a brand new church, remember. But they turned to God from idols. They made a decisive break with idols. Now, the gods of Greek and Roman paganism were everywhere in Thessalonica. If you're going to plant a tree, you would pray to a relevant God. If you were going to go on a business trip, a quick visit to the appropriate shrine was in order. It was woven into the fabric of their culture. So the Thessalonians, you see, they could even see Mount Olympus from where they lived. It was about 50 miles south of the city. This is where the Greek gods were supposed to live. Thessalonica was a large and prosperous city. It was the capital of the Roman province of Macedonia. It was a religiously pluralistic society. Many gods. Many gods. And a traditional idol would have had a tremendous hold over the people's minds and hearts and lives. Having lived in uh, superstitious fear and submission to them, the thought of breaking away would have been absolutely overwhelming. I mean, think about this. Habits and routines, 
thoughts, motivations, identity, lifestyle, everything wrapped up in idol worship. These, these idols were actually ingrained, as I said, in the fabric of society. These idols were a way to find immortality. These, what I would call lowercase gods, the lowercase g, gods, these lowercase gods, these idols were a way to find relief from sickness. They were a way to find the promise of sexual fulfillment. They were a way to find all kinds of things. Now, we have some of the same promises coming from our cultural idols in our day and age. We have more sophisticated idols, or so we like to think. Yet they hold, their hold over us is the same. I want, I want to give some examples of some of our present-day idols. I think of materialism, consumerism, individualism. You know, some people are so eaten up with a selfish ambition for money or power or fame. Others are obsessed with their work or with sports or with leisure. And then there's our culture's obsession with sex, which is a god, an idol of our culture. In Ephesians 5, verse 5, Paul talks about immorality and greed being forms of idolatry. Why? Why is immorality or greed, why are they forms of idolatry? Because they demand our allegiance. The end result of giving ourselves to immorality, giving ourselves to greed, giving ourselves to you fill in the blank, Isolation, humiliation, bondage, discouragement, distraction. You see, when you look under these idols, you find a hunger, a deep hunger for acceptance, for approval, for power, for security, for identity. You find all kinds of things when you you lift up that idol. Everyone's a worshiper. Everyone. We're always worshiping something. We're giving ourselves to something, to someone. And sin, we're going to have a working definition of what sin is. Sin is attempting to find a sense of identity and meaning apart from God. That's really what sin is. Yes, it's disobedience, and we can talk about what that is. But for our talk today, I I want you to think about sin this way. Finding a sense of identity or meaning apart from God. Because you are created in God's image. You were called to live for him. You were called to live in a way that God is at the center of your being. But all of us are tempted to give ourselves to the lowercase gods of our culture, to the idols of our culture. Very good things, listen, very good things, like money or relationships or sex or work. These are good things They're fine in and of themselves. But these good things can easily become the greatest thing in our life, the things that we live for. They can easily become lowercase gods. I remember it was the spring semester of college, 1995. I know I'm dating myself, but that's okay. And uh, I I was in a uh, dating relationship with Valerie, and um, we've been dating for a while, and I, I was an art major, so I, I, I made a mixed-media uh, portrait of her, and she came to visit me where I was living at the time, and I thought it would be funny if when she walked into the room, uh, I was pretending to worship her image. <laughs> yeah, really funny, right? Yes, I was a Christian. Um, 
so here she is. She comes around the corner, and I have her image propped up uh, with incense burning, a couple candles, and I'm laying in the lotus. I'm sitting in the lotus position, and uh, with my eyes closed. Uh, this, looking back, it's just like my heart, uh, yeah, my heart drops. My my stomach turns because what I didn't know then is that just a few months later we would break up. That God was putting His finger on just that that I had placed her in a place that she shouldn't have been. She had become an idol. I had placed her where only God belongs. You see, she's a, she was a great thing in my life, but she had become the greatest thing, the thing I was living for. The Thessalonian Christians would have looked so strange in their culture for turning away from idols. They wouldn't have taken part in a lot of normal social and cultic activities of their day. Now, because of this, they would have been harassed and persecuted. They would have offended and even disgusted some of the people of their day. Now, in Acts 17, if you remember in verse 7, the, uh, really, the thing that the Thessalonians were holding against them, they said they were defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there's another king. So in addition to all of the idolatry that was happening in, Thess- in Thessalonica was actually uh, also the worship of Rome and the emperor. This was the imperial cult. And they had a great allegiance to Rome. And so here, they're hearing about another king, an alternate king. And this is what they had against the church. They're defying Caesar's decree, saying there's another king. And, and they're right. They were saying there's another king, a, a worldwide king. You know, but this new church had found their acceptance and their security, not in Rome, not in the patron god of their city, not in the idols, not in the temples, not in Egyptian gods or Greek gods. This new church had found their acceptance and their security, their certainty and love and identity in Jesus, their Messiah. The idols of Thessalonica just didn't compare. They paled in comparison to the reality of Jesus. Is that true for you? How do the idols of our culture compare? How beautiful, how glorious is Jesus? Now, I don't want you to think they never wrestled with habits and thoughts or that they were never tempted to look at Jesus plus idols to get what they want. You know what I'm talking about? This sort of, uh, I mean, because they were a very pluralistic people and they were living in and swimming in that culture, I'm sure there was, there was a lot of temptation to worship Jesus and maybe turn to some other idols. But they were standing firm. How did they live with endurance and deep conviction? How did they actually face suffering without losing hope? I, I want to know because I want to do that. I want to endure. I want deep conviction. I, I want to face suffering without losing hope. And listen, they could face whatever came their way, because Jesus was enough for them. What could they possibly lose now that they had Christ? What could they possibly need now that they had Christ? Their reputation was secure in Christ. Their identity was certain in Christ. They had a love and an assurance that surpassed anything they would ever experience in Christ. Suffering harassment, persecution, all of it was temporary and could never actually threaten what mattered most to them now. But think about that. Harassment, persecution, they could endure because it couldn't threaten what they had in Christ now. It couldn't take away what they had in Christ, so they would endure. 
you know, the Thessalonians initially turned to God because they heard and received the message of the gospel. When we're overly familiar with something, we stop paying attention to it the way we should. We forget that the same gospel we believed to begin with is actually the gospel, the same gospel that will sustain and keep us. Have you become overly familiar, overly casual with the gospel, with the reality of sins forgiven, of being welcomed into a new family, of being set apart, of receiving a righteousness, a right standing before a holy God that doesn't come from you? Have you become overly casual with it? Have you forgotten how beautiful it is? Have you forgotten how beautiful Jesus is? You know, it's a decision that we made the day we looked to Jesus as Savior to turn away from idols. But it's a decision we have to make every day as well. Why? Why is it a decision we have to make every day? Because we're prone to wander. We're prone to drift. We're prone to become callous and numb. Are you actively turning from the lowercase gods of our culture? Are you actively turning from the idols of our culture that scream for your attention and allegiance? They're everywhere. When was the last time you confessed, okay, I'm obsessing over my bank account. Jesus, you are my security. My provision is in you. Help me to rest in that. Or when was the last time you said something like, I'm thinking way too much about how I look. Jesus, my identity is in you. I'm accepted by you. I have nothing to prove to anyone because you have welcomed me in. When was the last time you said, I'm obsessing, I'm trying to control things so much so I'm freaking out at the people I love the most. Jesus, you are the only one who's truly in control. When was the last time you said, I'm finding too much joy in my title at work and Jesus, I want to find more joy in you and what you say about me. These are ways to push back against the lowercase gods of our culture. Verse eight, the message they received, it rang out, not because they planned an event that would demonstrate their faith. No way. The driving factor of their lives, their motives, their desires had actually changed. The gospel of Jesus had infiltrated their lives and and, and love and grace in Christ had influenced everything about them. It was changing everything about them. And as a result, their lives had been plugged into an amplifier and cranked as loud as it could go. And all the neighboring uh, cities and all the churches that were beginning to sprout up were hearing this report of what God was doing through the Thessal- Thessalonians. That was our longest point. Turned away from idols. To Number two, to serve the living and true God. The word serve means serve as a slave. Paul says this in Romans chapter 1, he's a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, you are not your own, you were bought at a price. When we come to faith in Jesus, we are servants of Christ. And it highlights the wholehearted nature of what it means to be a follower. You know, this isn't so much about what the Thessalonians did, This really is about who they were, or even more than that, whose they were. When they turned to serve the living and true God, this is about whose they were. God called the Thessalonians to himself. In verse 4, it says that they are loved and chosen. They're welcomed into God's family. They're invited into God's mission. And they understood that. 
They belonged to him. But now it's our turn. Do we understand that? I want to live in the reality of this every single day. You know, we can live our lives defining what success is in life according to our, to our own criteria and completely miss the heart of God. I, I don't want that. We can live our lives distracted and indifferent and exhausted and just busy. By the way, it's not about trying to fit God into our schedules or our busy lives. It's seeing that he has fit us into his story, his great story of redemption. And we can easily, though, lose our sense of calling, lose our sense of identity as spirit-empowered people who have been set apart for good works. We can lose this. I don't want to lose it. I want to learn from the Thessalonians. I want to serve the living and true God. I want to see that I belong to him. That it's not so much, it's not so much about what I do, though that's important, but it starts with who do I belong to? Now you might be thinking, oh great, I knew I wasn't serving God enough and now you're telling me I should serve him even more. Remember the, remember the starting place of the Thessalonians. Our service to God, it grows out of faith and hope in the one who came to serve and give his life. That's the starting place. This way, when we live that way, we aren't striving to prove our own significance. We aren't striving or aiming to build a name for ourselves. I'm not, I'm not trying to prove my own significance before God. He accepts me. And when I understand that, when I understand he accepts me and he loves me, now I can live in light of that. I belong to him. He's rescued me. He's called me to himself. It's good. That's our foundation, to serve the living and true God. And third, to wait for his son from heaven. We're going to learn a lot more about how they were waiting and some of their misconceptions about people who had passed away in their, in their young church, some of their questions about the return of Christ. But here we see that this is something that marked them, and it's a good thing that they're waiting for his son from heaven. And waiting does not look like sitting. This isn't your typical waiting room experience. You've been there, right? You've gone to the hospital, and you're waiting for a loved one. You got the smell of Cheetos. Uh, some kid brought Cheetos into the waiting room. Uh, you got the TV, kind of just reality TV blaring. And, and, and so the, the two things combined are driving you crazy, but all you're thinking about is your loved one. And you're doing nothing but waiting hour after hour after hour. This is not your waiting room experience. The waiting that we're called to is active. I want you to think expectant faith. I want you to think fervent hope. I want you to think humble service. They were waiting for a historical event to take place, for Jesus to break into space and time again. They were waiting for the return of the king. And waiting looks like what? Waiting looks like 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3. We continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, your endurance inspired by hope. That's what waiting looks like. What do others say about local church St. Pete? I know we're young. <laughs> I know we've only been around a few weeks. What are people saying about us? We're a people. We're not a logo. We're not a building. We're not a person. We're a people. What are they saying about us? What do other Christians say about us? What's the culture of this church? What are we all about on any given day? What do we celebrate? It's important for us to evaluate that, to ask that, especially now as we're starting out. 
what would it be like for others to tell our story of faith? What would they say? You know, our only hope at a faith that makes some noise, which is what I want for us, I want it for myself, our only hope at a faith that makes some noise begins with the story of Jesus coming with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. The story of Jesus coming with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. That I'm convinced that Jesus is the Son of God, that he's the King who lived a perfect life in my place and died a substitutionary death for me. And was, he raised to life and he rules now and he reigns. He's defeated death and sin and he's welcomed me into his family and he's called me to himself and he's, he's put me on mission. Oh, when that happens, when, we, when I believe that and embrace that, there's a deep conviction about that. Well, nothing can get in the way. Nothing can alter our course. Nothing, nothing. We're gonna make some noise. But what if I told you you couldn't be what the Thessalonians actually were? That's a bummer, right? Not without first seeing Jesus for who he is and finding joy and rest in him. You cannot be what they were. You can't turn away from idols. You can't turn to serve the living and true God. You won't wait with anticipation and joy for Jesus to return. You won't be those things unless you first turn to Jesus And rest in him, unless he's first your treasure and your all. And out of that will grow these things, these characteristics. People will look in and say, wow, they've really turned away from things that we've all been living for. They're serving in a way with joy and love, this God who they say is is real and alive, and and they're waiting with anticipation and expectation for that day where Jesus is coming again. These people are different. They're a little weird. But I like what I see. You see, what are people saying? What do they see? Do we have a faith that makes some noise? It's got to begin with our rest in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for... Thessalonians chapter 1. Thank you for what we learn of this young church. Thank you for what it teaches us about what it means to live in a pluralistic, relativistic culture where the idols of our culture are just screaming at us every day to delight, to delight in. Father, help us to turn away from those idols, to turn away from those lowercase gods, to give ourselves wholeheartedly to who you are in the face of Christ, to treasure you more and more, to love you with deep conviction, to be certain of your love for us. And out of that, they would grow this this labor and this, this faith and this endurance that can't be stopped, that won't be stopped. That out of that would grow a turning away from idols, that out of that would grow a service unto you, and out of that would grow an anticipation of, of the return of your son. Father, do this work in us, we pray. For your glory and our good. Amen.